Welcome to Heritage Tree, where we talk about heritage care and development for people and organizations. And now to our host, Dr. Dina Michelle Roscoe. Good morning. Today I am out walking on a trail, so you might hear the sounds of birds and crunching leaves and other sounds of planes and people in the background. And that's okay, because our lives aren't all meant to be lived in a studio box. And we need to get out and reflect and refresh and see the world. And part of that experience lets us have space to breathe and pause and engage that parasympathetic nervous system so it can imagine and calm our body and help us to relax and heal. I want to pray for us today. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for nature, forest bathing, and the sounds of airplanes, and footfalls, and the sounds of the breeze through the trees, and the sounds of little squirrels scampering away, and the smells of the leaves and the pine. Thank you for all the beautiful colors of brown and green and yellow and blue and white and red and orange. Thank you for a solid rock right here to to stand on and a log to sit on and for the texture of wood and the feeling beneath our feet of the soil and the earth. Thank you, God, for our bodies that we can walk or sit or each in his or her own capacity do different things. Thank you for those moments when we feel relaxed and at peace and can heal and learn and imagine and grow. We pray for the space and the breath to do that today and that this conversation be a blessing in Jesus' name. So today, as I was reflecting this morning, I was reflecting on the topic of resentments, and it's a big one. And I think for the generations, it's an important one. In the scriptures, when you read Psalms 8 through 10, it talks a lot about evil and the harm and suffering it can inflict on the generations, specifically children. And in that passage of Psalm 8 to 10, King David discusses how, or laments rather, how the orphans suffer at the hands of evil people. And he ends Psalm 10 with this ask of God that God be delivering and caring and just, and I'm adding the words here, but he ends with this ask of God that 
you fix this problem so that the children who have suffered greatly will no longer need to fear evil people. Now, a counterpoint in the later scriptures, the writers encourage the church to look after widows and orphans in their distress and keep himself from being polluted by the world. The first martyr of the Christian faith was Stephen, and he was one of the, what we might call today, committees, who was commissioned by the church. They were appointed, they were chosen and laid hands on, they were anointed to go out and do a widow care ministry for those women who did not have family taking care of them, and because of their status of widowhood, were economically and socially, culturally left destitute and ostracized. How sad that he did this ministry and he was martyred for his faith, and that somehow those who did that act of murder and evil upon him didn't see the value of the service that he was providing because of their hatred and contempt, because of this resentment that he believed in a man to them named Jesus, that to them it was justified to fly into a rage and kill somebody because they believed differently, but they didn't see the work of his hands, that as the church, they were providing a valuable service. Now, that would assume, of course, that was a value, but we know in the days of Jesus and in the older scriptures that the arguments that people had with him The grievances that the religious elite had with him, and I use the word elite very loosely, they regarded themselves as that way and were culturally assigned that way by praying long prayers and public to show off and wearing these outfits, fancy outfits to designate themselves. And we might laugh at that today or think that's silly, but... How do we do that in other areas of our lives? What cultural or political or social or religious products do we use to assign ourselves rank? And why is that important? What does that have to do with the real work at hand? And this is back to Psalms 8 to 10. In the Kingdom Trilogy, the three books that I write about a gospel heritage, for the realities of basic needs, for a legacy of safe love, and for a future of continuing. I basically draw on this Maslowian idea, this idea of a hierarchy of needs, but I don't use that metaphor of a hierarchy. The idea of the circles, the lesson of the circles, I write about extensively in the books. In book one, I introduce it, and I introduce it in the same chapter, the very first chapter called Advent, when I'm talking about childism. But I introduce it at the beginning of the chapter as 
an important concept to hold on to when you're reading through the books and interpreting them. Each chapter is based on, of the first book, our basic needs. So you have food and shelter, you have water and rest, you have outside, which covers the natural world, our engagement with it, and vocation or integration of that. And I go into some length describing what that means. I don't always spell it out. It's a contemplative writing style. In the second book, I go into the chapters for all the different sectors and systems in society that we engage as we are building heritage, basically as caregivers. In this world, that's what that translates to. So in the third book, I go into the solutions of that, of what the gospel offers, what the church can enact. And so for this topic today, in Psalms 8 to 10, and how this concept of evil can drive resentments in the generations. And I introduced the metaphor of a pendulum, and I talk about that. When you pull it up on one side, it swings back to the equal and opposite side. So what happens when, for example, a child is by itself or not treated right or what what things in the world, what events and actions hard-pressed children, and we have lots of things that we know. There are many nonprofits, much NGO and other data that's out there about the risks of children five and under in the world and how conflict by adults or even youth can hard-press them because it takes away their caregivers. And when the younger years are present, they are higher need in that they depend on someone else to help them source their basic needs. Basic needs are essential for survival, we know. But somehow we forget that connection, that integration with caregiving principle of care before power and power with care. So in the second book, we have all the different systems and sectors in society, and I've hinted at that in the beginning of this conversation when we're talking about the religious leaders, and I haven't even brought up the political systems or institutions yet, and the cultural norms that serve a function for those. You might have a really big thing, but we might focus on the really tiny part of the behavior that we're seeing as a result of that really big thing and moralize it, for instance, and say, that's right or that's wrong, and they need to change their behavior. But what we're not seeing is the bigger picture. What Jesus saw when he looked at the crowds and gazed at them with compassion, because they were hapless and helpless and without a shepherd, they were without their preeminent eternal caregiver to supply their basic needs with safe love so that they could continue. As we become older, it might seem like, depending on our ability and situation, and when I use the word ability, it's more about functioning and less about ableism, but it might seem like we are functional, more accessible to source our own basic needs, and therefore we think that we're more safe or stable or powerful 
And again, that connection can get lost if we're not engaged in some kind of practice of caregiving. And this might be something such as when you're older and searching for your vocational pursuits, keeping in mind what your talents and gifts are. I work in life coaching and leader coaching and in my books a little bit, but mostly in my one-on-one coaching and my group coaching on how to develop your vocational trajectory in life, if you will. And it's more about integration. Again, I heavily rely on that principle. So when you have talents or gifts that you want to develop, you do have a degree of basic needs available to you and resources that you are not as distressed or stressed to use your energy and time to marshal those other resources that you need to survive. So if people aren't as successful or succeeding in life, it's not necessarily the function of a stereotype to keep them in that place because we might judge their behavior, but they might actually be signaling a stress cue in the system, a bigger picture of what's going on. This is important to know for the sake of practicing compassion. Compassion can be that great lifesaver. When we have resentments build up over generations, it usually ends up in a war or estrangement or some kind of injury or stress-induced or related illness, which is not to say that all illness is from that. The symbol of the cross is a religious example. We take that to mean, and I have that as some jewelry, and I've drawn it in some art. The symbol of the cross, the iconography of it, represents to a Christian the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that he shed his blood to pay for this persistent habit of passing down resentments of reacting to the larger sin in the world and trying to fix it with just more sin, more violence, more cruelty, what we might name evil. And he paid that price and was able to do it because of his identity as the son of man and son of God. I speak to this in previous episodes. And also because of his empathy, of his empathetic engagement, even though he knew all truth and his truth set free, he still engaged with compassion and leadership. And he also still engaged and he was able to be incisive towards those who were offended at this ministry. I speak to this in other episodes also, how the offense of the political or religious leaders and the indifference or mockery of the political or religious leaders at Jesus involved their confusion, one, around his identity as a son of man and son of God, two, their offense that he claimed to come to save them from themselves, (laughs) from their own devices and the larger sin at work in the world that they seemed to want to deny, and three, because he and this is important to this conversation, had compassion, showed compassion, and healed people who suffered under their leadership, who suffered because they weren't engaging in a caregiving principle, and they weren't doing the work. The symbol of the cross, the cross itself was a state-funded 
torture device to execute people and not just criminals, by the way, because even Pilate himself, Pontius Pilate said, this man is innocent. I see no fault in him. I find no fault in him. And I wash my hands as though that would cleanse away his spots. And of course, his wife warned him to not have anything to do. She was tormented all night from dreams and visions. And it's interesting how we can have that forewarning about a decision that we're doing is not engaging or responding to the prompting or conviction of the Holy Spirit. You don't necessarily need to be a, a Christian to have a sense of conviction or a sense of icky feeling that this isn't good. This isn't right. I don't feel safe in my body. I don't feel good in my stomach. I don't feel good about how that person's being treated or something, a decision I'm making. I know it's harmful. I know it's not caregiving, caretaking, taking care of oneself, taking care of others. The cross was definitely not that symbol. It was definitely the symbol of all the sin that was culminated upon, upon which Jesus died, upon which people murdered him, and soldiers who beat him up and mocked him and made fun of him and stole the tunic that his mom had masterfully woven, presumably, and that the justice system of the day, the political system, the religious system, his own family at the time, his brothers at the time, betrayed him. They did not have a value of taking care of a person, a basic principle that, no, we're not going to torture someone. No, we're not going to murder someone just because people don't like him, because a group of people are offended. No, we're not going to engage this person as a pawn in our turf war because we want to pacify the people we're occupying so we can take their land. No, we're not going to take symbol of X, Y, or Z, or of a teepee, or of a feather, or of any other cultural symbol that in other societies, including in the United States, and I know I just pushed that in there, but it's on my walk. It's on my hike here. There's this teepee that people built out of wood, and it looks cool, and it's cultural appropriated from a society that stole land, that killed and murdered people, civilians, women and children. 90% of the indigenous population in the United States was murdered and wiped out. Genocide. That's what we call genocide. When it's for a political religious reason, when it's against a different group, when it's a large group of people, it is a genocide of people. And the purpose was to acquire and then to send in other people to, in other words, seemingly subdue that by building out a space that was more culturally, I don't want to say relevant, let's say acceptable to the new, the newcomers, if you will. Now, why did it have to go down like that? Why couldn't it have been more neighborly, mirrored back what was offered? And I recognize that it was not always peaceful, that there's tribalism around the world. There's intergroup violence, and I talk about this in previous episodes, so we won't get into that here, so don't worry. <laughs> but it's an important concept to understand that the symbols that we acquire and put forward 
just to basically understand them, not saying it's right or wrong, just understand and know what it represents is more than a pleasant situation, a pleasant picture of a bygone era or a representation of our faith. It is the first step that Jesus died upon all these sins, not just the individual sins or the behavior that we might moralize as a small, tiny picture of that, the small, tiny megaphone, but the larger malo, the larger goop and gunk that's just there. So I want to leave you with the image of an empty tomb and a heart in the middle of it that swallows up all of that because that's the life that Jesus offered and that's what he's after. That's what caregiving is after. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this day. What can we do, Lord, to engage life with care, to engage power with care, and to power with care, and to engage caregiving before power? Will you show us the way forward? Will you heal our generations and bridge the gap from all the sin and the resentments and so that we can begin anew? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard, tip us at the link below and inquire, subscribe, and shop our merchandise label of Heritage Tree and Heritage at dinamichellerosco.com and dogwoodgroup.io. Come back again when we gather around the Heritage Tree.